0: We're going to be in Mark 6 this morning, and uh, I believe that's page 36 on your scripture journals. And uh, for the last six chapters, we have seen what happens. When the mission and kingdom of God collides with the kingdoms, the agendas, the ways of this world. For the last six chapters, Jesus has been displaying his power and authority to the region of Galilee in in miraculous and wonderful ways. Naturally, his fame is spreading throughout the region. But even in his growing popularity... Jesus has not always been received well. Mark has written these accounts for us, compiled these uh, moments to to put on display to us that Jesus is not just a king, but a servant king, that he comes ushering in not a kingdom of an earthly nation, but in the words of John the Baptist in the opening uh, uh, pages or the opening words of this book, the kingdom of God. But as I said, it it hasn't always been to stellar reception, even in light of all the good that it has brought many people. If you could recall the last couple of weeks in your mind, Jesus brings his disciples to his hometown of Nazareth and the reception is brutal. Jesus reveals his nature, his deity to them by the words of the prophet Isaiah and people are not down. They have strong words for Jesus. They insult him. They feel scandalized, embarrassed by him. The people's intensity of their unbelief, the scripture says, amazed Jesus. It didn't surprise him, but it amazed him. There was a reason Jesus took that brutal visit, though, with the disciples. And it was to prepare them for their mission. Immediately after leaving Nazareth, Jesus sends out his disciples into the world, but he does it in the same way in the instructions that he gives them that he's been portraying mission to them. Here's what I mean. This is verses 7 through 11. Jesus has shown his authority over sickness, over disease, over demonic possessions, even over death. And so he descends his disciples with his authority. He empowers them so that they can heal the sick, so that they can cast out demons, which they do. Jesus has always operated in a fellowship together with the people he sends them in pairs so that they are always together praying together encouraging each other but also doing the work together as witnesses Jesus has been working tirelessly not pursuing his own comfort but advancing the mission in all that he does so he charges them not to pursue their own comfort so that their hearts were protected and focused Jesus has modeled This way of mission to his disciples, and they have been sent out to do the same. And family, by extension, so have we. And last week, we got to see the beginnings of this literary practice that Mark uses called the sandwich, right? It's where Mark wants to tell you a specific point using two seemingly different stories. If you look at verse 12, and verse thirteen, and then you look at verse thirty. It seems like verse thirty should be verse fourteen, right? If we were to read it, it says, "So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them." And then verse thirty says, "The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught." But it isn't. There's seventeen verses in between this first really thick piece of bread and this bottom little sliver of bread so what's up with that middle piece what's up with this this story that looks like it's got nothing to do with the disciples being sent out this morning the portion that we have to read we have for us to examine is is a bit weighty there's a level of maturity in the content That is in there. And so I want you to sort of brace yourselves. Parents, there may be a follow-up conversation at home, which I understand. But here's the thing. We can't skip this. Though the scene may be intense, though the concepts at play here are sort of difficult to imagine, they are here. And we are here with them for a reason. So let us read with that in mind. That God is going to speak to us through his word. Amen. All right. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then would you join me in a word of prayer as we hear from the Lord this morning? I want to read Mark six, starting in verse 14. Your scripture journals are in the ESV this morning. I'm reading from the CSB. The readability is just a little bit better. And so I'm choosing that one, but read along with me. It reads, King Herod heard about it because Jesus' name had been well known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and, pro, and chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he married her. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So, Herod, so Herodias, sorry, held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod feared John. And protected him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very perplexed. And yet he liked to listen to him. An opportune time came on his birthday, Herod's birthday that is, when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod. And his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath. Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head, she said. At once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. Although the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and his guests. He did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. This is... God's word, let's pray. Oh, Father, you are good in all your ways. You are kind in all that you do. Let us not miss that in our text this morning. Give us ears to hear your word. Give us hearts receptive to its beckoning. And give us hands that deliver your justice, Lord. Draw us nearer to you through this sermon. Would you gift me as the preacher with clarity of speech and thought? And would you deliver to the congregation attentiveness and grace from my errors? For Christ's fame and our eternal joy. Amen. You may be seated. When my wife and I first got married... We got hooked on this show. It was really, really good. It, it was like all-consuming for us. Uh, we got married real young, so we had all that youthful stamina that can last on like one or two hours of sleep because you stayed up all night watching TV. Well, it was binging before. Binging was cool. But um, we, we, we had to finish this show. We had to. And the, and the show was called Lost. You know what I'm talking about. What made Lost great, at least to me, right? If you haven't seen Lost, I've not yet steered you wrong on an illustration. I just want to let you know everything I've recommended to you has been A1. But what made Lost great to me was you were always confused. (laughs) You watched one episode and you got three answers to a question, but 68 more questions. just that's what every episode did it was ridiculous and 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 I know that on the surface what I deliver to you is very problematic you're like how do you watch a show like that uh but I promise you it was gripping but one of the ways Lost tells its overarching narrative is through a series of flashbacks right sometimes the flashbacks are one minute sometimes the flashbacks are like 10 episodes long but they would tell these flashbacks so that they can give you context that sort of informs the present you see what I'm saying You see how that works? Sometimes they they, they give you something that happened in the past, and then all of a sudden you understand the character's motivations in the present. That's kind of what Mark is doing in this sandwich. Mark has in the present Jesus sending out the 12, but in the middle of that, he gives us this flashback to the death of John the Baptist. Something that happened even before Jesus had entered Nazareth. Now, what is Mark trying to communicate to us? Well, if I was preaching to you verses 1 through 30, the main idea would be that there is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost to following Jesus wholly. The life of a disciple is not a lavish one, it is not one of great comfort. It is not one that is only in service with our hands, but it is one that also speaks. It speaks the gospel, the truth. It speaks light in the darkest of places. And the message you bring, the message you live by has consequences. It will cost you. Church, we have a message for this world, a message of good news that changes everything. And and though the message is good, and though the implications of the message are good, even still, we will be rejected and possibly killed. That's a word for us today. You can say amen. We need this. We need this because, family, in this life, your decision to follow Christ will not be accepted by everyone. That message that you preach, the standards that you maintain in your life, the worldview that you will carry with you will not be celebrated and admired by everyone. But here's something important also, and I have to do this. There is a tension we have to hold today. The tension is this. On one hand, Christians have not always been the beacon of light we have been called to be. The reality is that Christians have been the oppressors, that Christians have been the tormentors, that Christians have been the slave masters. That Christians have exchanged philosophical and theological enlightenments for the gospel constantly. Christians have manipulated politics, manipulated people in their churches, have prayed on the weak, have abused those who should not have been abused. That is a reality. Today and throughout history, there have been faithful saints and there have been unfaithful saints. It is unfortunate that the unfaithful have been the loudest ones. They have created stumbling blocks, barriers for people to resist the gospel, reject its faithful heralds. There are people who will hate you, people who will reject you, people who will call you into question, not based on what you've done, but because of what others have done in the name of Christ. But the point that Mark is painting here is not this point. Mark is painting the picture that we will be rejected, that we will be persecuted, that we will be cast out just because of the gospel. That is the tension that, yes, people will not receive us because what they have experienced at the hands of other Christians. But we also have to hold in tension that we will be rejected, that we will be mocked, that we will be persecuted, that we will be killed even just because, just because of the gospel. Just because of the name of Christ. Just because we are living as he's called us to live. Just because we preach a scandalous message of grace. Both are true. But Mark is painting the latter point in these texts. Nobody said it would be easy. Living the life of Christ may get you rejected, may get you cast out, may get you mocked, may even get you killed just because. And we can sit with that. That there is a cost to following Christ for all of us. And it's not just going places we probably want to go. It's not just saying certain things we really wish we could say. It's not just participating or abstaining from the participation of certain activities. No, there is a higher cost than that. All right. Let us look to the text this morning. You'll have to forgive me. There's a, my software that I've been using to preach has been acting funny lately. So sometimes I got to refresh. Look at verse 14. King Herod heard of it for Jesus's name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. Others said he is a prophet like the one of old. Mark begins this portion of his writing by giving us a different point of view. Still in the present, this is the view of King Herod, who is actually not a king. We have to name that. Herod's not actually king. He's a tetriarch. And many scholars have ideas as to why Mark is calling him a king here. But my favorite is that this is Mark's satire. That's actually one suggestion that Mark is being sarcastic. Oh, King Herod. Sort of a running joke in this time. Herod was not a king. His father was. You may remember every Advent season we talk about King Herod. About how he sent the law to kill the boys. All the boys. Two years old and under. Because of the prophecy of a coming Messiah. King Herod feared for his own power and ordered this decree. That's King Herod the Great is what they called him. Herod the Great had a bunch of kids, but the one you need to know are Aristobulus, Herod Philip, and Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is this Herod, the one in this story right here. Herod Antipas was a tetriarch. Essentially, what happened is, is Herod divided his kingdom into fours. Herod Antipas got this portion. So he's the ruler of a fourth division of his father's kingdom. So not king at all. In reality, governor at best. Right? That's what we got. But he calls himself king. But this also says a lot about his character. This is one of those beautiful moments where uh, the Bible sort of gives, gives us actual historical evidence. There are history books that teach us about Herod. We have more than just scripture to tell us this truth. Herod was full of himself. He was a bit cocky. He liked to overextend his reach. He was overambitious. At one point pleaded to Rome to actually become king. Rome wasn't having that. And so in pursuit of kingship is actually what gets him exiled away until his death. But this is what you need to know. Herod is constantly in pursuit of prestige. His ambitions continue to get the best of him. But at this point in the text, Mark is telling us that Jesus And his disciples, their work has become so popular. Their notoriety is a thing that even Herod hears about. So again, still the present, Jesus was popular. He had a growing fame. He sends out the 12. They go out through the regions of Galilee, and they become famous through Jesus' name. Remember, he sends him in his name. So now Herod hears about them. Herod hears about this Jesus who's doing miraculous works and wonderful things. And so he asks around, who's this guy? People say he's like one of the prophets. Like Isaiah and Jeremiah of Amos and Obadiah. He's one of them. Some people say, no, he's Elijah. Come back from the dead. Remember, Elijah never really died. and He got taken away into a chariot. So Jews were sort of like, he's coming back. But others say he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. This is interesting to us because we have not yet read that John has died, right? But that's the one that Herod chooses to believe. Herod Herod said, oh, it's John. It's John. John who I'm beheaded. John who has been raised. The Greek here is evident that Herod believes that Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected from his own guilty conscience. We read, uh, the the sense here is that he was tormented. It says that he would say it over and over and over again. It's John. John's come back to get me. That's what the Greek here assumes. Herod's conscience binds him. When he hears of Jesus' good works, he remembers the evil he's done and he worries for his life. He has this superstitious fear of Jesus. But notice that he's not apologetic. Right. He's not. I killed a prophet of God. No, it's. Oh, he's come back to get me. He's uh, self-protective. That may sound crazy. But we do this, too. Not the idea of superstitious fear, but the idea of suppressed evil. We harbor deep down inside, we don't like things to bring that back up. We put from our minds the evil we have operated in. See, Herod was conflicted. He has a bound conscience. We read the text. On the one hand, he likes listening to John. Herodias, his wife, has pleaded over and over again to kill him, get rid of him. And Herod has protected him and put him in prison instead. Herod is confused by the things John says. He doesn't have ears to hear the gospel, but he likes to listen to John preach anyway. But then we have this conflict within him internally because he's also killed him. We've done this. It's it's a natural thing in, in us to not put ourselves on the line, to not do the hard work of repenting and reconciling and admitted wrongdoing and confessing. We suppress our own conscience to forget the bad things that we've participated in until something random lures it up again. I told you the nightmare story that was deep fishing for me. I went deep sea fishing this year. Some of you may remember the story. I'm going to get my computer. This is awkward. I'm breaking the fourth wall. That's what I feel like. But I went deep sea fishing earlier this year, and uh, it was terrible. That's how I felt about it. Uh, but I did it because it was a friend's birthday, and I wanted to be supportive, and it was terrible. Um, I, did not, I did not enjoy that. <clears throat> you have to give me a second. But the problem with the deep-sea fishing, or, or the reason why I bring this up is because we, we went out way, my, I mean, hours, hours. Why did it take so long? Hours on this boat. Just getting rocked. There's nothing for me to hold on to. I feel like I have to justify it now. There's nothing for me to hold on to. It was very scary, okay. But this boat is just, doosh, doosh, doosh. and I'm like holding on. And I'm I'm a big boy, okay. So I feel like I'm since I'm round, I'm in shape. Round is a shape. I can roll out of the boat. I was very scared of that happening, okay. Putting myself out there, but um. Man, that's unfortunate. This did not save. But anyway, um, I bring this up because when we got outside, you could not see land anywhere. <clears throat> we spent hours leaving the coast, going into the deep sea. I, I don't know where I was, Okay. And so in my mind, I'm not used to outside water. I'm not well-versed in outside water like y'all coast people are. Y'all understand how it works, how fishing works. I don't understand how fishing works. In my mind, you go out in the water, you drop something in the water, something magically bites it. And then you pick it up and then, wow, you got good pictures. And so we go in the deep sea and that's sort of how I'm viewing this moment. I don't know where we are. I can't see the land. I don't know where land is. The sun is like in the middle of the sky, so I don't know east to west, okay? I am nervous. We throw bait in the water, fish come out. It's really amazing. The point is, if you could just put yourself in my position, and understand the point that I'm creating here. We well things deep down inside of us. Deep down in our hearts, we push things down. The the things that we have participated, the evils that we have done, like Herod, we suppress it down and down and down. We don't want to think about it. And then somehow, something random fishes in the deep sea of our forgetfulness and lures it back up. That is Herod right now with Jesus. The announcement of Jesus' good work, the announcement of Jesus and all that he has done brings up in Herod a guilt for something he's done in the past. Family, that's not what grace does. Grace does not operate on the surface or or operate in the surfacing of the past for shame and condemnation's sake, but rather grace set the captives free grace empowers the believer to not live in secret to not live with a bound conscience but instead gifts those who treasure Christ with the Holy Spirit to be alert of sin, repressed sins repressed wrongdoing they don't have power over us because Christ has settled that debt, family this is why this is why for us to behave as kings of our own kingdoms is foolish, the sea of your forgetfulness is not as deep as God's this is why it is foolish for us to live as captives to our own selves living in the relentless circle of you assuming your own reign pursuing your selfish desires that is not the grace or that is not the life covered by the grace of God church we do not need to live as Herod pursuing ourselves as king, held captive to every darkness we have dabbled in, controlling our environments, pursuing our pleasures. Rather, we need to live in the freedom that Christ, the true king, provides. Freedom from shame, freedom from guilt, freedom from sins, tyranny, freedom from the constant pursuit of comfort and safety. Mark is trying to explain this today. And so he gives us a flashback, Mark. He gives us a flashback. He tells us how John the Baptist has died. And he shows it to us, this party. It's funny because as we think about John the Baptist, there is no one, Jesus says, in Matthew eleven eleven. No one on this earth is greater than he. John, he's talking about John. That's a statement from Jesus. And that statement alone should have us holding John in high regard. The first prophet in 300 years of silence from God and his message was clear. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John's message is one of repentance. And he had no problem calling out the sins of others and naming names. John was a man filled with authority from God. His collision with Herod was inevitable. John was far too popular and far too bold to not have Herod's attention. But here's the thing, Herod actually liked John. Like I said, there was a, a respect for him Even when John had called out Herod's sin. Even when John called out his affair. The story is is Herod's first wife was sort of a political marrying. He had to marry her because regions and Rome and, you know, things like that. But he divorces his wife to marry his brother's wife. And John, it says in the text, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. I love that John is unafraid to speak out against the sins of his political leaders, but that's not the sermon for today. This bold declaration angered Herodias. Herod was like, nah, prophets, prophet, right? Herodias was offended. She was angry with John and urged Herod over and over and over to kill him. The the, the Greek assumes that this was a normal thing that Herod and Herodias would discuss, killing John. And Herod would not do it. She harbored anger. And contempt for John. You could just imagine in your mind's eye, anytime John is mentioned doing his thing, preaching, baptizing, anytime he gets wind to this royal family, the conversation that would sort of well up ah, oh, you should have killed him. So Herod is trying to please Herodias, and an attempt to silence John imprisons him, and Herod is conflicted. But Mark continues, and this is where the story gets a little perverse. And sort of weird and I'll try my best to explain it Herod throws a banquet for his birthday and he he invites all the political leaders all his buddies it's a party full of power players figureheads of the ancient world they've had far too much to eat far too much to drink and towards the end of his party Herod's stepdaughter who's also his niece puts on a dance this is not a ballet You following me? This isn't your daughter's or your niece's dance recital. Think of it more like Esther when she danced for the king. That's the kind of dance we're talking about. And Herod is pleased in a gross way, and he says to her, ask me for whatever you want, even if it's half my kingdom, which is crazy because he's not a king. You see Herod's character play out? I'm not a king, I don't have a kingdom, But I'm so in this right now. You could ask me for something I don't have. That's who Herod is. And so the daughter, in excitement, runs to her mother, Herodias, and says, what should I ask for? Herod said I can have anything. What should it be? And his mother says, John's head. She takes advantage of the moment. She says, I want it on a platter. Now. And so Herod who has made this oath, now has to deliver it because he doesn't want to be embarrassed in front of all his friends. And he doesn't also want to kill John, but he does it anyway. And moments later, the platter is served with the head of John the Baptist. Family, the forerunner, the herald, the baptizer, The one whom Jesus called the greatest is beheaded as a party favor. Is beheaded simply to protect someone else's own embarrassment. Why why would Mark write this? Why would Mark write this? Why would we have this beautiful story of apostles going out and doing gospel work, healing, rebuking demons, preaching the gospel? It's beautiful. And then we have this. And then what do we do with this? This is messy. This is disgusting. And Mark interrupts a beautiful story to tell you this horrific one. To not just give you an historical account. But to do something else, family. All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Mark writes this for our equipping. Mark writes this. To equip us to do and to be what God has called us to be. Mark places this account next to the disciples mission for practical gospel purpose. Let me make my case. A few observations. Number one, let this serve you as a warning against the destructiveness and enticement of sin. Herod's intoxication, his pride, his pursuit of prestige among others, his desire for notoriety and power, all drove him to a hardness of heart. He went from entertaining John, being intrigued by John, perplexed by John, to killing John, to protecting himself. Instead of doing the right thing and protecting John. To save face in front of all the powerful people because of an oath he made while he was inebriated. Sin's destructiveness has intensified, uh, 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 hurried up the process of Herod's heart hardening. That is what sin does. Look at Herodias, her wrath. Her contempt for John. Oh, she was hard hearted from the very beginning. The truth she wanted nothing to do with. And it drove her to be complicit in the murder of an innocent man. Using her own daughter to get what she wanted was deceitful and cunning. Sin has a way of talking you into the pit of hell and believing you are okay. You ever seen that meme with the dog who's sitting at the dinner table and the whole house is on fire and he says, this is fine. That is what sin does. But church, even if you feel like you are far from Herod's reality, that's not the life I live, Justin. How how could I be, uh, uh, how could I see myself in this? That, That is not the life I live. Every time you entertain Or give in to something that God calls out of bounds, you walk into the same danger and destruction as Herod and Herodias. You walk into the same, you follow the same path that they've laid. You know why that's hard to hear for us this morning. Paul Tripp says, because we've been worn down by a culture that no longer takes sin seriously. I agree with this. How often we see ourselves compromising, see ourselves dabble in the darkness, see ourselves slip into the entertainment of what God says we shouldn't. And that's exactly why this story is here, to remind you, to warn you, that this is what we are up against. The second thing I want, that I think this does, this remind us that the gospel is offensive. If I could lean on Brother Tripp here again, he says the gospel causes you to think about yourself in ways you don't want to think about yourself. The gospel teaches you that life is not all about you, that you are not the center of the universe, but that God is, that you do not have a right to write your own rules and live however you wish to live. The gospel reminds us, family, that there is one king and that one king is Jesus and all other kings, including ourselves, are pretenders living to protect our, to, to our made up sovereignty. Uh, Family, there's freedom in this offensive gospel. The gospel teaches us that what we need is grace and grace again. That when the gospel offends us, reminds us that we are broken, no matter how put together we think we are, it reminds us that we are actually dependent. No matter how self-sufficient we think we can be, it reminds us how immoral, no matter how moral we think we can be, it reminds us of our depravity, of our inability to save ourselves, to be our own savior. When the gospel offends us, it should cause us to run to the Father in trust and confession or it will harden us and we will double down in our wickedness. Like Herod family, my question to you is which of these is you? Which of these is you? My hope is that you would look to John. My hope is that you would look to John to look to his example, braving against the status quo, living to the glory of God, preaching his message, not just with his words, but with his life, completely surrendered, completely devoted, completely complete in Christ, in his death. John truly was a forerunner until the very end. With his life, he prepared the way for Christ's ministry to begin. He, like a king's herald, went out into the lands, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. And in his death, we see a foreshadow of a death to come. Herod believed that John was a righteous man and yet sent him to die a criminal's death even though he was innocent. Family, the real righteous one, King Jesus, will see this same Herod before his death too. And he will die a criminal's death, though he won't die because of crimes he committed. He'll die for ours and provide for us eternal life in him. This is how the sandwich ends. In verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Mark returns to the story of the disciples. They returned from their work, spreading the gospel, healing the sick, driving back the forces of darkness. What a sobering image. Because 11 of them will die very similar deaths to John's. They will see too what happens when the kingdom of God collides with the kingdoms of earth. Are you on mission, family? Are you ready to receive the call? There's one one final observation. I love that Mark finishes with the disciples' mission complete. Because though the evils of this world have prevailed. We see it with Herod, right? That's the point of the flashback. The kingdom of God cannot be thwarted. It cannot be shaken, it cannot be moved, no matter what may happen. The greatest prophet murdered. It for a party. And yet the disciples return to Jesus in their work. And I can't wait to read what happens next week. Because though though Herod provided entertainment for his guests, Jesus provided food for people who were starving to be with him. Stand with me and worship.